Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly sermon podcast. We pray you meet God and know that you are loved today. Be sure to visit us at risenking.life to take all of your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning. We are continuing our our study of Revelation. I want to read a little bit about where we're at. So what happens is we see the the ever-increasing, in a sense, letting go of God who has withheld judgment against this earth, who has held back. As a matter of fact, um, John, when he's writing, he says, He's held back the four winds of judgment. And so as you see this, you, you begin to go, wow, I don't, I don't know if I can take much more of this. And so one of the writers said it this way. He says, just as we get to the point where we want to put our hands over our eyes, John lifts us up into the presence of God, a place of worship and revelation. These interruptions are called interludes, and they perform one key function. They lift the listeners in the seven churches. Remember the first seven, the first uh, three chapters are to the seven churches uh, in that Asia Minor Turkey area. And so this, to lift them out of the horrors of what Team Dragon is going to do into the heavenly throne room to experience God as the real story behind the story of everything. The new Jerusalem is not yet here, And the life we now experience may feel like the dragon is winning. But Good Friday became Easter morning. And New Jerusalem will one day replace Babylon. John wants us to remember our Easter faith that Jesus defeated death in the resurrection. That story announces that the lamb and justice win. And the dragon and death lose. See, in some ways, as we've gone through this together, I hope you've caught my perspective with you, is that Revelation is not primarily predictive. Revelation is primarily for people who will not be contaminated by this world. It is for people who will say, I'm going to stand up to the dragon and all his devices, and Team Lamb is my team. Now, we're going to look at today one of those interludes, and there's really only, there's only two like major pictures in this, this narrative that we're about to read, and the one is, is a mighty angel, and the other is a little book. So as we read these scriptures together, I want you to notice the description of the mighty angel, and then I want you to see what happens with the little book. I like it when you read out loud together. This is Revelation chapter 10. Uh, Let's read God's word together. And I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face was like the sun and his legs like pillars of fire. He held a little scroll open in his hand setting his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. He gave a great shout like a lion roaring. And when he shouted, the seven thunders sounded. 
And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it, and the sea and what is in it, there will be no more delay. But in the days with the seventh angel is to blow his trumpet, the mystery of God will be fulfilled as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, go take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So the first thing I'd like you to, to recognize with this is there's a pattern here. So there's an intensifying of revelation. There's an intensifying of God's purposes being revealed. But there's also, there is a greater and greater intensity of what's happening to John. And what we see in the, in the beginning is he's called to be a spectator. He's called to record what he sees. But now, if you notice, he's not just being a spectator, he's asked to experience what's going on. He's act, actually becoming a participant. And so I, I want you to understand something, is that this is the pattern that God has for each of you. There is an increasing intensity as you are longer and longer with Jesus, where you step out from being someone who watches what God is doing to actually participating in what God's doing. And he does not leave you as a spectator. As a matter of fact, he wants, like John, he wants you to become more and more intimately involved with his purposes that he is unfolding in your life. He has an assignment for you. He has a purpose for you. And the truth is, we've said this before, but you are immortal until all God's purposes on earth are fulfilled in your life. So until the day you die, you have a purpose. Until the day Jesus returns, you have a purpose. And, and if you're not living in that purpose, if you're just continuing to watch from a distance and you're just spectating, then you're missing out on all of the glory that God has for your life. Uh, now, is it scary to get involved? Did you read what they asked John to do? This is the biggest, baddest angel there's ever been. <laughs> And the voice says, go take the book away from him. That's going to take some courage. That's going to take some courage. What happens when most people see angels? They drop dead, don't they? Or they, they drop to their knees. They close their eyes. You've got to look to take the book. I didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it did. You understand? All along the way, there's an intensity of invitation. All, the long, all along the way in your life, there's an intensity. You cannot 
live on the intimacy you had 10 years ago with God. You can't live on the intimacy you had five years ago with God. You need a fresh intimacy with God today. And what that means is you can't say no to involvement. You have to get more and more intimate with how God works and then more involved in the purposes he has for your life. Now, when John describes, and and this is the problem sometimes with people who read their Bible in one year, they read too fast. When John describes this angel, it gives me shivers. This description of this angel is terrifying. First, the word mighty. I mean, again, when you call someone mighty, it's because you're seeing something that is so much bigger and stronger and more powerful than you've ever seen before. But then on top of, top of that, it says he's wrapped in a, cr- a cloud. Now, some of you get cold in here and you're wrapped in a sweater, but there's nobody in here wrapped in a cloud. And people wear rainbows on their shirts and all over the place. He's got a rainbow over his head. Now, now, somebody said it this way. One of the ways that rainbows are formed is when the sun shines through a cloud, it produces a rainbow. And what does it say about the face here? The face like the sun. So the cloud wrapping him with the sun radiating from him is producing a rainbow over him. And then his legs, like pillars of fire. And then it says he has one foot on the sea and a foot on land. And then when he opens his mouth, it sounds like a lion roaring. One of my professors said it this way, try to make a model of this angel and you will fail. Are you tracking with me so far? See the picture? So a lot of people try to figure out because it's not, there's no name for this angel given. So a lot of people try to figure it out. And there are many people who will say, this is Gabriel. But you see, Gabriel's already shown up in the narratives of Jesus' birth. I think John would have said Gabriel if it was Gabriel. All the attributes that are here and all the colors that are given here, they're actually colors and attributes of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, some people say, There's nowhere else where Jesus is called an angel. So this would be a rare kind of occurrence. But think about what all of those descriptors mean. The first is clouds represent the glory of God. The Shekinah glory is a cloud. I mean, when the the temple was filled with the glory of God, it was so thick, the air was so thick, the priest fell as if slain in the spirit. They couldn't even function. So uh, one of the uh, descriptors of the throne of God is the clouds encircled the throne of glory. So this is definitely an angel from God and an angel of God. Then the other thing is, it's called the the rainbow. It's like a multicolored headdress. And when you look at the rainbow in Scripture... First and foremost, it signifies God's mercy to not destroy the earth by flood again. It's a a symbol of his covenant of grace towards us where he is 
The rainbow is a, a promise from God that he will save us, not destroy us. And so even in the midst of all this judgment that's taking place that the earth rightly deserves because of its fallenness, there are these pictures and glimpses of God's mercy and grace in the midst of his judgment. And the other thing is his face shining like the sun. We see this one other place, and it's on the Mount of Transfiguration. When the veil of Jesus' humanity is pulled back and his glory as the Son of God is revealed, it said that Jesus' face shone like the sun. And so one of the things that uh, happened when the disciples who were with him saw that they wanted to stay there forever. They wanted to build a tabernacle there, and they wanted that to be the place where they worshiped because with their own eyes they had seen who Jesus really is. Now, the other thing that John wants you to do is to call your attention to where his feet are planted. So you see the right foot is on the sea, the left foot on the land. You understand this, this is lordship. It's saying, I have sovereignty over the land and I have sovereignty over the sea. This, this is rightfully mine. Now, I don't know exactly if this is trying to say this is Jesus. This is John seeing Jesus in this kind of glorified, authoritative state. But I'm convinced of this, is that it is at least a representation of the authority that Jesus has over everything, including you, and over your life. Jesus is the one who said that when he sent his disciples out, he said, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. And so whatever this is, it is a picture of all the authority of Jesus and, and, and its expression in this world. And that authority is absolutely sovereign and absolutely mighty. So why is this so important? Well, you've got, you got to understand a few things about the pecking order. When Satan tempted Adam and Eve, they fell from their position of being rulers and governors of this earth. God never lost his position. The Lord never lost his position. We lost ours. You see, Satan stepped into our place, not Jesus's place. Now, none of us could undo what our original parents did because in the same way that they chose to rebel against God, you and I have a predisposition from birth to rebel against God. The sweetest little children, I'm sure all of you have sweet little children, you never have to teach them to lie. You have to give them consequences so they won't lie. But I've never seen a parent say, here's how you lie, and every child lies with complete professional ability. There's a predisposition. One writer said it this way, if, if that little baby who's so cute in mother's arms didn't change, that baby would be a monster by the time they're 20 years old because of the selfishness and the self-centeredness and the self-absorption. Now, we put up with it because they're so cute. 
and because they look like us sometimes. <laughs> but all of that is a, there is a predisposition towards self. So even if you try to do all the things the church tells you to do, if you try to do all the things the Bible tells you to do, still you would be doing it not out of love for God, but out of fear of punishment. See, most of us, even in our relig best religious state, are just trying to get out of the punishment. You don't do it for God. You do it so God won't punish you. So interesting when you think about it, the people who don't lie, they don't lie for the same reason the people who lie, lie. I know I sounded like a guy from Mississippi when I said lie. I got it. But here's, here's the deal. My mother used to say it this way. We don't lie because we're not that kind of people. So you see, that's fear and pride. We're afraid we might be that kind of people if we lie. And we have pride that we're not that kind of people because we don't lie. And why do people lie? Fear and pride. I don't want to get caught. I don't want to have the consequences. I don't want you to think ill of me. When you've lied the, your best lies, it was always so that you wouldn't get caught. Or it was so someone would think something about you that's not really true of you. So in other words, if the motivation for lying and not lying are the same, then God who sees the heart is going to say, it's sin either way. <laughs> you guys got quiet all of a sudden. If you understand what I'm saying, you will realize that what you need is a savior. You don't just need a religion. You need someone who can take your place. And see, that's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus came to do. He didn't just come to give you a moral example. You see, in a way, if I could say it this way, if Jesus is your moral example, then you're utterly and completely crushed. Because none of us in this room have ever lived up to his example. And none of us can. And so what he came to do was to be your righteousness. What he came to do was to be your acceptance with his father. And so what he had to do was become fully human in the same you know, person who was fully God so that he could, he could actually qualify to take our place. And because he was willing to do this, he was able to destroy both sin and death, but the cost to him was great. Do you remember what Satan's offer was when he tempted Jesus? If you just bow down to me, I will give you all authority over heaven and earth as you can see it. Again, when I was a kid, I was like, yeah, but he's Jesus. Why would that tempt him? But then I started to realize Satan actually does have some kind of authority over what he was showing Jesus because Jesus had given the authority of that to us and we lost it to Satan. So what Satan is saying to Jesus is there's an easy way and there's a hard way. If you take the easy way, I'll give you my place. I'll give you my authority. I'll give you my power. But Jesus said, I'll never take the easy way. 
Jesus said, I'm going to take the hard way. So he who knew no sin became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God in Christ. He was more concerned about restoring your place than in exercising his own comfort. And so what you see, what you see when, when you see this amazing picture of this mighty angel, you're seeing the one who is behind everything. Now, why, why, you know, why am I going into this theological treatise with you is this. It feels like, it feels like everything that's happening to you is bigger than Jesus. I've had people say to me, my pain is more real to me than Jesus is. But if you could get this picture that John is trying to share with you, this picture of a mighty angel wrapped in glory, of a mighty angel who, through whom the sun is shining through his face, a, a rainbow over his head of grace and mercy, and his legs so big that he can cover the sea and the earth at exactly the right time. See, that's the one you're depending on. That's the one you're calling on when you pray. It is why, friends, I, and I'm not trying to pick on my, our, our, our Catholic neighbors and stuff, but let me just say, I don't think it's good to have a cross with Jesus still on it. Because then it makes you, it makes you think the one you're worshiping is still small and defeated. And it makes you think that he has to do it again and again and again. This is why I believe not only should there be an empty cross, but you should have a, an updated picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, mighty, wrapped in glory, filled with the radiance of the sun on his face, with his, his headdress being the grace and covenant mercy of God, and his legs so fiery that he could crush anything in the, his path. And he's got his feet on both the sea and the land. And he's the one that's for you. Amen. You see, he was willing to be killable so that now you won't be killable. Or defeatable. I don't even know if that's a word. Are you hearing me? Yes. So Jesus had to do this so as to destroy the curse of sin and death. And, and in doing so, he made a way. He blew out the back doors of death. And so what John is seeing here is he's seeing a, a new, fresh impression of all the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm trying to say to you, when you think of Satan and his demons, do not be intimidated. Do not, even if you sense evil presence, do not be fearful of what is present because they fear the one who's present in you. See, he is so mighty and so powerful, but you and I, we often see him as, as, as obscured and far away. And John is trying, John is trying to get us to see when you live in the authority of Jesus, when you live in your assignment in his authority, then all authority is working on your behalf. 
Let me, let me illustrate this in a way. Will you, you take your finger and just kind of draw a circle around yourself? A little vacation Bible school circle. Now, look at, think about this circle. So wherever God assigns you, within the circle that he assigns you, he gives you the authority that Jesus has. You have, as the church of Jesus Christ, you have the keys of the kingdom. Now, the circle, in some ways, gets bigger the more intimate you get with God. Because authority grows with intimacy. Because you have to know what it is he's wanting you to do, what he's wanting you to pray, what, he's, what walls he's wanting you to break down, what areas he, he wants breakthrough, and what he wants through you. But you have to have intimacy with him because, you see, it, I go back to this beginning again. How did John get more intimately participating in the purposes of God? Because he watched first. Do you know what Jesus said? I don't do anything of my own initiative. I only do what I see the Father doing. So many of us, we want, we want to just run headlong with our authority, and you will not see your authority reach its full potential without also having intimacy with the one with whom you share the authority. If you don't know what Jesus is doing, you're just doing your own thing. And he's not chasing after you going, well, let me fix this mess now. He's saying, I'm right where I always was. And guess where he is? A foot is on the land and a foot is on the sea. He's not sweating the details. He's saying, I'm waiting for you to watch then I'm waiting for you to participate and I'm wanting you to grow in your intimacy. And I paid the price for you to have authority. If your prayers are never answered, it means you're praying wrong. You're praying for the wrong things or you're praying out of the wrong motivation. You're not praying what he wants you to see. When you pray what he wants you to see, the answers are like bread falling off a truck. It comes right to your neighborhood. Let me, let me illustrate. Are you hearing me? Let me illustrate this one more way. When Lisa and I had the opportunity a few years back to go to France, we went to Normandy twice because we went on a tour and it so touched us that we decided we wanted to go back and spend some more time in Normandy on the beaches where the invasion took place. And I took some time in the museums, and there's a, there is a, one of the museums had the words of one of the German generals, the commander over the whole area where the invasion took place. And the commander said this, if they breach the beaches of Normandy, the war is over. The allies will win. And sure enough, if you think about it, once Normandy was breached, Germany could not hold back the allied forces. But it was a skirmish, a battle. There were losses. There were retreats. There was advances. All along the way, lives were lost. They could not have Berlin with fighting all the way from Normandy to Berlin. 
So Jesus' death and resurrection is our Normandy. The battle is won. But now we are the ones taking the ground back that he wants us to take back until he returns. The battle is still on. The skirmishes still matter. It's still costly. But you and I have to have in our head exactly what that German general said, the battle that we're fighting is in a war that is already won. So, come on, I can't give it to you better than that. Come on. See, you and I act like the enemy has us on the run. You have him on the run. And the one standing on land and sea is not going to be deterred by your skirmishes that we're fighting, but he's asking you, have you been watching me? Have you been listening to me? Have you been saying yes to the invitations that I give to you? If so, then you're growing not only in intimacy with God, but you're growing in authority for this world. And what would the enemy want more than anything else is to destroy your use of your authority. If he can make you anxious, you won't use your authority when you're anxious. You're begging God to resource your idolatry when you're anxious. When you're fearful and you won't even be able to experience or or express faith, the enemy's got you. And what I'm trying to say to you is that if you refresh and you have a whole new picture of Jesus, then the enemy is a cockroach and Jesus is a mighty angel. But you see, many of us, Satan is mighty and Jesus is far away. And we don't understand at all that it's actually the reverse. Are you, are you able to take that in? Because it'll change your prayer life. So this is another reason why I believe. I'm not saying that the angel is the Lord Jesus. I'm saying the angel is at least a representation of all the authority of the Lord Jesus. And one of the ways that I know is the voice. He says, I heard the voice of a lion. What other lion would you hear other than the lion of Judah? Now, this part is interesting to me. It says, out of the voice of the lion, seven thunders sounded. And John goes, okay, it's my job to write this. So he starts writing this, and then he hears another voice say, don't tell what happens. I'm like, oh, my gosh. (laughs) If what you've told so far is able to be told, what in the world would you be holding back? And yet, what we know, we don't know what the thunder said, but we, we know there's an intensity. See, every time people say, this must be the end, it could be. But there's also, in, the, in Revelation, there's also this intensifying that takes place. And not only is there an intensifying, but the percentage of people affected grows. So the first thing we looked at with opening the seals is 25% of the earth is affected. Then you have the trumpets and you have 30, 30 or a third of the world is affected. We don't know how much the world would be affected when the thunders thunder. But when the bowls are open, when the bowls are let loose, it's 100%. So I, I can't predict 
I can't study the scriptures and predict when the end is going to come. But I can predict this, that every bad thing that's happening is God saying, will you not turn to me now? How much more do you have to go through before you repent and surrender? Because you see, I mean, here's the Apostle John who's getting incredible firsthand information. And yet there's some stuff God can't even tell John. Or maybe he did tell John, but he didn't want John to tell us. I'll press on. So here we get to this part where the mighty angel, then after these thunders, he raises his hand, he swears an oath, and then he says, no more delay. Now, for some of us, you see, that, that statement is a wonderful thing. But for anybody apart from Christ, that's a terrible thing because that means the days of mercy will be over. The day of repentance. Those are, when he says no more delay, that's when people are going to say, let me find a rock to hide, you know, to fall on me. Because basically what, what Scripture is saying is at some point in this world, the, the days will be unbearable. And God in his mercy will actually shorten how long the unbearable days are. But it is clear from the scripture that it is always later than we think it is. Now, why is that? Well, it's because God's calculations are never our calculations. I, I, I know a lot of us think <laughs> that everything should go the way we want it to go. But we're on God's time and God is not on ours. You know what's always been fascinating to me is how long God makes you wait, and then it seems like it comes quickly. You know, uh, it's almost like this passage reminds me of uh, when we were in Africa. It took a group from the church, 13, 16 of us, I guess, went and did ministry in Uganda. And every morning they would say, we're going to start the crusade at 9 a.m. We're going to start the conference at 9 a.m. So all of us, you know, gringos, would get up and... Uh, <laughs> We're dressed, we're ready, we've had our breakfast, you know, and nine becomes 11, becomes 12, becomes one, or whatever. And then all of a sudden, the, the, the van gets there to take us there, and they're like, we're late. We're in a hurry. So it, 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 it was a weird sense. It was a weird sense of time didn't make sense to me. But all of a sudden, when it was time, it was already late. And we're running and hurrying and doing all this stuff. I think that's kind of what this, this passage is talking about, is that for many of us, it's going to feel like we're waiting, we're waiting. When's Jesus returning? When is justice going to be done? When will all things be made right? When will the sad things not be sad anymore? And, and it just seems like it's waiting and waiting and waiting. And I think what this is saying is when the time comes, it's going to feel like not only is it without delay, but it's going to feel like it's on a hurried pace. And none of us are going to be in control of it. And this is one of the, this is one of the teachings of this passage is that you are under the control of one that is not you. And so beginning to trust him 
beginning to let him unfold what you don't know about your life and the future and everything else is what he's training you right now because when the days are shortened, it's going to seem very fast. And so, wow, I don't know if I can explain that that well next service. Are you hearing me? I'm like giving you gems right now. (laughs) Gold. Gold, my gold. So all of this in the Bible is called a mystery. But you see, a mystery in the Bible is not something that you try to figure out the clues like Agatha Christie or try to figure out the clues and figure out who done it. A mystery is something in the Bible. This is a great definition. A mystery is something no one could know unless it's revealed to them. Because if you could know it by intuition or by personal investigation, it isn't a mystery. Mysteries in the Bible must be revealed by God. So in some ways, even in the Bible, you could know something and it still be a mystery because it hasn't been revealed fully what it means. And so this is why this passage is so interesting. It says, at this moment, the mystery of God will be revealed. And I think, you know, commentators say there's all kinds of things that this mystery could be, but I really think the mystery it's talking about is the gospel. And you know what this means? It means if you're a believer, God's already revealed the gospel to you. I mean, here's the greatest. How does a holy God save sinners? How does a holy God want relationship with the sinners? And how did God always plan to be the very one who would take the punishment of sin on himself go through death for you to make a way through death for you and do it when you were a a rebel against him. I mean, think about this mystery from Romans where it says, you know, God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You understand, he didn't put your sins and the punishment of your sins on himself when you gave your life to Christ. He put the punishment of your sins, past, present, and future, on the cross when Jesus died. He's been waiting to save you for almost 2,000 years. That's a mystery. You could not have deduced that. You know what we deduce? God, I'm going to try to make my good deeds be better than my bad deeds. And God says, your righteousness is as filthy rags to me. So what is being said here, I believe, is that just the right time, the whole world will see the exalted Christ glorified, even as we are seeing a picture of him right now. All right, I need to finish up with the little scroll. I love this. I love this little scroll thing. Because, you know, we talked about the other scroll. The other scroll is super long because it's all the purposes of God forever. It says it's written on the front and the back, and it's this giant scroll that none can open but the Lamb. But here is this little scroll. And again, I just remind you, this tiny scroll is in the hands of a mighty angel. And guess who gets to go take it from the angel's hand? And I love this. I love this part because John just goes up to him and says, give me the scroll. He is one tough dude, you know? 
give me the scroll. Can you imagine that? I'm sure, I mean, if I were the angel, I'd be saying, John, do you have any idea what you're asking me right now? And so the angel says to John, take it and eat it. It will be sweet in your mouth, but it will be bitter in your stomach. And John says, as he eats it, he says, it was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but it was bitter in my stomach. Now, there there are lots of ways that people take this, but I think the simplest way is this. If If you consume the gospel, if you say, this is who I am, I am a person who has been saved by the gospel of Christ, and you consume the gospel, it is sweet. It is sweet to recognize that God loves you. It is sweet to recognize that you have eternity with Christ. It's sweet to recognize you have the presence and the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But to live in this world with all of the sin that's here and all of the sadness that's here and all of the things, it is bitter to the stomach when you say it could be Or if you say, it should be, there should be justice, there should be love, there should be mercy, there should be righteousness, and you see all that, it makes a bitterness within you because you see what it could be, you see what it it should be. And so when I I saw this, I began to realize, what what is God doing here? Here is the Apostle John, probably 80 years old. And he's recommissioning him. He's saying, you have got to once again eat and consume the gospel. But then you've got to go to people who won't listen to you, people who will fight you, people who will persecute you, people who will be against you. He says, but don't you stop remembering how sweet the gospel is, even when it's bitter, the reactions and the responses and the life that you're living. And so I, I say to you that, that the angel of the Lord is saying to us the same thing that he said to John. He's saying, take and eat. Eat my word. Consume my word. Love my word. Love this whole idea that God commended his love towards you and that while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. Love that. But recognize to live it is also to face the bitterness of this world. And basically what he's saying to John, but he's saying it to us is don't forget the sweetness just because of the bitterness. And I, 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 can't, I can't say it any better than this. You have with you mighty angels. All the mighty angels are on your side. We still outnumber them two-thirds to one-third. We act like we're outnumbered, but they're actually outnumbered. I think that's why they're so desperate. You have the love and the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you get a fresh picture of how mighty he is and how glorious he is, then even these little skirmishes will be worth it to you because the victory is already yours. And then you have the abiding love of the Father poured out on your heart by the Holy Spirit. The fact you have the Holy Spirit is the guarantee that you have the Father's love. Do you know how much the Father loves you? He loves you just as much as he loves Jesus. If you are in Christ, you are loved as Christ. 